Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Good morning and welcome to Morning Joe. It is Tuesday, January 4th, and for some, heading in and out of Washington, D.C., a very long night. I mean, you look at all of the traffic still trapped on the roadway. And uh, I mean, you know, there's an old saying that if you want to figure out whether Washington is a northern city or a southern city, just watch two or three inches of snow fall on well, it, and then you'll know. More. But this was a lot more. Washington, D.C. usually shuts down, Mika, when it gets an inch or two of snow. Uh, yesterday, it got uh, way more than an inch, up to a foot in some areas. Seven inches recorded at Reagan Natural National Airport. The severe weather uh, had crews rushing to clear runways at Joint Base Andrews for President Biden's return to D.C., The heavy snow caused one of the staircases he uses to exit Air Force One to get stuck, preventing him and his staff from getting off for about half an hour. (laughs) Look at that. This is not this is not an inch. Uh, As for the roads, they were a mess. Cars got stuck across the beltway. Mika, I mean, look at that. And you you see that? You you see that? It's an Alexandria. (gasps) And just just absolute gridlock. And speaking of absolute gridlock, NBC's Josh Letterman has been stuck inside of his car for about 10 hours. And the problem's not with the locks. He's in his car (laughs) where he's been stuck there, still 30 miles outside of D.C. All right, Josh, tell us what this has been like. And um, what have you heard from people, I guess, in the same situation? Mika, this has been a pretty insane and fairly dystopian experience. Uh, I was headed back to D.C. uh, last night. GPS said I'd get back around uh, 5.15, about 7.15 with several delays. You know, it was looking pretty bad on the roads. And by 7.30, we were just at a standstill and have been at a standstill ever since, meaning uh, the thousands, I can see thousands of cars from where I am on the highway on I-95 have been in their cars overnight without food, without water. Uh, It's been 26 degrees outside and nobody knows how long we're going to be here uh, or how we are going to get out. So people, uh, once it got into about five hours that people were stuck in their cars, started turning their cars off because frankly, uh, people wanted to conserve gas. They didn't know how long they'd be able to stay warm uh, if they ran out of gasoline. Um, Mm. I've been doing okay gas wise, but we've talked with um, you know, some of the other folks who have gotten out of their cars to walk their dogs, to let their kids out of the car who have been, uh, ca- you know, camped up uh, in the cars for hours and hours. Uh, and they've said, you know, this is scary. You don't plan for a situation like this. And yet here is the situation we find ourselves in uh, almost 24 hours after this snow is actually falling. 
Hey, Josh, it's Willie. Uh, I'm glad you're hanging in there. We're looking at these live pictures from above, and my gosh, the line of traffic goes on and on and on and on. So what is going on up front here? And what are, Who are you hearing from? What are you hearing about when you might be able to break this log jam? I mean, you've been at it for more than 10 hours now. How much longer do you think you'll be there? That is an open question. We've been looking at basically Twitter, trying to see if local authorities are putting out any information, as well as local radio. Uh, there was one period where they briefly opened one lane overnight, and we got to move about a quarter of a mile down the road. Then it crashed again and was completely out. Um, we haven't seen since before midnight. I have not seen a emergency vehicle or a police car or a plow on my side of the highway. Both the north and south bounds are completely shut down. We've seen some plow plows on the southbound side. It's possible there are some emergency vehicles trying to help us at the front of this, kind of coming from the other direction. But from this vantage point, uh, if you're looking for you know the rescue battalions and the backup to be coming, we have not seen any of that uh, in more than six hours, and that's why nobody knows how long this is going to last. Well, we're going to be reaching out to authorities to try and find out as well, Josh. I understand you have your dog with you. I have family members in that area I'm very worried about. They haven't had power. Oh, your co-pilot is keeping you warm. What a cute tweet. But I, I truly, sincerely hope you guys are okay. You know, I mean, thankfully, I am, uh, you know, safe. We have enough gasoline. Um, you know, I'm not, I, I, everything seems okay for the time being. But, you know, if, if you were to have an, a medical emergency right now, uh, if you were to not be able to stay warm right now, there's no way anybody is getting to you. You're on your own out here. Um, and that is not a safe situation for us to have. Yeah. NBC's Josh Letterman, we're going to check back in with you. Thank you very much. Uh, stay as safe as you can. Thank you so much for checking in with us. Man, I, I tell you what, I mean, Willie, think about that. Uh, Josh <laughs> yeah. is doing all right uh, right now. Uh, uh, but 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 again, think about the people out there who were only expecting to be on the road for yeah. a short while, 10, 12 hours later. They're stuck uh, in, in freezing weather. Uh, think about people who have medical conditions, maybe people who need insulin shots, uh, seniors out there. This is a really serious situation, and it appears that nobody can get to them. Nobody seems to help. I, I find this absolutely remarkable that they haven't been able to move, move uh, people off that road in 10 hours. Yeah, 10 hours. You'd think they'd clear a lane maybe and get people moving. You, you pointed to exactly what I was thinking about. Somebody who didn't travel with their medication because they thought they were running out to the store. Young kids who probably expected to be headed to school right now, but have been sitting in that traffic now for 10 hours. Um, we, As Mika said, we're going to be reaching out and finding out what exactly is going on here. On behalf of all those people sitting there, like Josh, who is you say looks good doing well man travels with a satellite uplink you always like to see that so you can get the news out while he travels but my gosh think about yeah. all the people and all those cars and where they expected to be this morning certainly not sitting right there no, I mean, you think about people who, you know, uh, aren't going to be able to get into work today. Maybe people who have child care issues, people yeah. who left and are supposed to get home, get their kids ready uh, for school. Uh, but again, especially those who have medical conditions. My God, the authorities have got to do something to get uh, those roads opened up. And Mika, you, you, you look today, uh, uh, the, the airport situation, obviously not as 
dangerous and grim as this, but the airport's uh, having another terrible day yesterday. Yeah, thousands of domestic flights are still being canceled every day. Airlines canceled nearly 3,000 flights yesterday as Omicron continues to surge and extreme winter weather grounds planes. According to the flight tracking site FlightAware, there have been about 700 cancellations in the U.S. so far this morning alone. Well, you know, Willie, we've been talking for the past several days about how Omicron obviously is not as extreme as Delta, that the United States needs to keep oh open, God. needs to stay open, needs you know, people need to take precautions. And obviously those with underlying conditions need to be especially worried. But we need to keep our schools open. We need to keep business open. That's said, if you're running an airline and you're getting hammered, you know, one pilot after another, one flight crew after another being shut down because they've got to isolate for five, six, seven, eight days, man, that can really grind things to a halt in the air. And it's starting to do that. Yeah, it's just a numbers game. I mean, if your pilots are out or you can't get a crew, you can't send the plane up in the air. It's the same thing we're seeing in some schools. They'd like to be open, but they can't get enough staff in the building to look after and teach all the kids. And the reason for that is this global record set yesterday by the United States for COVID-19 cases in a single day. More than one million new infections were reported on Monday Alone. That's according to data from Johns Hopkins University that has nearly double the previous record set just last week. To put things in perspective, the highest single day total for another country anywhere during this pandemic is 414,000 that came from India during its Delta variant surge last spring. We should note, though, yesterday's total does include a backlog of cases from the holiday weekend with so many Americans struggling wow. to get access to tests and others using take home tests whose results are not sent to the government. Yesterday Yesterday's total case number is likely much higher than reported. So, guys, that is a huge number. But as I said, that does not count all the people who are lucky enough to get an at-home test, take it. They don't report that number to the government. And then all the people who can't get their hands on a test or can't get an appointment for a yeah. PCR test or are waiting three, four, five days for the results of those tests. So one million yeah. is actually a lot fewer than there probably are in the country right now. Yeah. A, a lot different. I mean, it, breaking records, Mika, right now. And as Willie said, that doesn't count all the at-home tests that people are taking. And more importantly, than that, uh, the vast number of people that can't even get their hands on tests right now. So we really have, we'll never really have any idea, uh, most likely, just how many people are infected. Yeah, we have a, on the East Coast, at least, and especially in the Washington, D.C. area, we have this strange confluence of events with severe weather and COVID. And this is just tough. So we'll be following every angle of this, um, following the COVID numbers, the testing issues, as well as the people stuck on the highway in Washington, D.C., and what the forecast looks like in the days to come. But now let's turn to the other big story of the morning. Newly revealed court filings show New York Attorney General Letitia James has subpoenaed Ivanka Trump and Donald Trump Jr. as part of her civil tax fraud investigation into the Trump Organization. The December subpoenas are seeking testimony and documents, quote, in connection with an investigation into the valuation of properties owned or controlled by Donald Trump Jr. or the Trump Organization, according to a New York Supreme Court order. That's Donald J. Trump. Yeah. Lawyers for the Trumps 
filed a motion to quash the subpoena late yesterday, arguing James's office is also assisting the Manhattan district attorney in a criminal probe of the company and cannot issue subpoenas for testimony that could immediately become available to its own criminal investigation. James has previously subpoenaed the former president. Well, you know, uh, Willie, we've been able to uh, see by you, you looking at what happened with Randall Lane at Forbes a week or two ago, uh, what we've been hearing out of the, the DA's office. Obviously, uh, they're they're looking into false valuations. Donald Trump doing what Donald Trump's always done, exaggerating, whether it's his ratings, whether it's his support, yeah. uh, whether it's his poll numbers or in this case, uh, whether it's how much money he has. And of course, that's perfectly fine if you're just bragging uh, to a Forbes editor or uh, bragging at uh, a restaurant uh, to fellow friends. But when you start doing it and start lying to investors, uh, that that's when it becomes a real problem. Yeah. Inflating the value of a property or deflating the value, depending on what you want to get out of the deal, better loan terms or a lower tax rate. Uh, that's what they're looking into here. Joining us now, NBC News investigations reporter Tom Winter, who's been following this case and all the others around it very closely. Tom, good morning. So uh, not a big surprise that Don Jr. and Ivanka were subpoenaed here. Eric Trump has already sat and talked with the attorney general in this case. So just to remind our viewers because so much swirls around the former president and his family. What exactly are they looking at here? Right. So it goes to the issue of valuations of properties. I mean, one specific example that we know, because as you mentioned, Willie, Eric Trump uh, has already spoken in, in taken a deposition in this case. Uh, we know when they were trying to get him to sit down and talk as part of this civil investigation uh, that spilled into public view back in August of 2020, one of the things that they were looking at is the Seven Springs property in Westchester County, New York, that the Trumps have and whether or not uh, they were properly valuing uh, that property when they sought to get a 20 $1 million uh, tax easement is part of uh, uh, some of the work that they were doing in, in, in some of the uh, ways that they were classifying that property, just as an example. So that is what they're looking into. Uh, last night, as you said, a motion to quash filed uh, by the Trump attorneys saying that it was unprecedented and unconstitutional. That's a quote from their filing that this uh, that, that these subpoenas should be issued for all three of them. So you're looking uh, at everybody there on the screen has either uh, spoken with the attorney general uh, or has been issued a subpoena for their testimony as well as documents. Uh, so you've got Eric Trump already talked to them, Ivanka, Don Jr., and the former president all being asked to speak uh, to the attorney general's office here as part of this. Uh, they propose two solutions. The first is to quash it and just say, you know, the subpoena shouldn't be issued at all. Uh, the second option or, or plan B uh, to uh, to kind of quote their filing is that, that this be held until the criminal investigation is is done. You know, the situation that they don't want to get themselves in, obviously, is a situation where they're providing information in a civil case that is then going to be used in the criminal case. And New York State has some very unique uh, grand jury laws, Willie, where if you sit before a grand jury, you can't be charged for any of, the any of the things that you're asked about or any of the answers that you give unless you commit perjury. So this is being seen by some on the Trump side uh, is an end around of the New York state grand jury process. But look, I think two things are very clear here. The first is they're clearly not going after like Alan Weisselberg, the, the Trump CFO's assistant's brother, right? They're clearly focused on the Trump family. And then this is more than speculation. They're obviously coming towards the conclusion of this civil investigation because you don't talk to the primary principles uh, until you've gotten all the documents that you need and until you're ready to kind of go to them uh, is the crux of your case.
Hey, Tom, good morning. It's Jonathan Lemire. Can you also provide, there's obviously, as you mentioned, two different investigations going on at the same time here on two separate tracks. Give us an update on the other one. We know the Manhattan District Attorney, Cy Vance, just left office. There's a new DA here in Manhattan in charge of that case. Where do things stand there? And do we have any sense of timelines on either of these probes? Right. So the Manhattan District Attorney, Alvin Bragg, is now in control of that investigation. That is the criminal investigation. Uh, they are doing some work with the New York Attorney General as well, uh, as well in that investigation. So that continues forward. Cy Vance had said uh, uh, some time ago that he had, had hoped to perhaps come to a conclusion by the time uh, his time in office was up. Obviously, that time has come and gone. Uh, so now that investigation will live on. It's a, it is a grand jury investigation. Uh, and because of that, we're not getting uh, the type of level of detail that we normally uh, might, but we know that interviews had been conducted, uh, grand jury interviews had been uh, conducted on that uh, uh, toward the latter part of last year. So that's something that we need to continue to watch. Um, I think, you know, on the civil front, again, if they're going after uh, the principles here of the Trump organization, which is obviously the former president and his children, uh, the fact that they're looking to speak to them is a clear sign. Um, I am told that they're coming towards the conclusion of that investigation. Does it mean it's the bottom of the ninth inning, uh, to use baseball analogies that you all love so much. Uh, p- perhaps not, but we're certainly not in the third inning. I think we're towards uh, the seven or eighth here on the civil investigation. If that's the case, does that guide us at all on the criminal side? Well, time will tell, Jonathan. Baseball analogies. Baseball. We never talk about baseball on Morning Show. Hey, Tom, <laughs> finally, what is what is the chance that this effort uh, to quash the subpoenas uh, end up as a big strikeout for uh, the Trump uh, lawyers? Uh, uh, wow. Wow. <laughs> not, not bad. Not bad, Joe. Throw a curveball, uh, <laughs> I think. <laughs> the curveball. Hey, five, five. Good. Uh, I didn't know oh we're God. doing late night stand up here this morning. So well, I we're, think, we're not. <laughs> I think. Uh, I think there's a chance that they well, first off, it it serves a purpose of delaying this. Right. So that might be their initial uh, thought is let's slow this down. Let's figure out what's going on. I think one of the things if I were the Trump attorneys that I would want to try to get out of this, there's a second line of this, not just evaluations, but any matter I'm reading from the filing, any matter which the attorney general deems pertinent. So is there uh, any additional scope here uh, of, of areas that they want to go into? Could they glean something out of that as a result of, of their motion to, to quash uh, and as a, as a result of their filings and litigation here? That might be helpful to them. I think ultimately they're going to have to sit for this um, because that's just the, the rules of, of the way the things yeah. go in civil cases here in New York. The question is, do they have to sit uh, before the criminal case comes to its conclusion? Um, I, I don't think they have a great chance here. All right, NBC's Tom Winter, thank Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. So former President Donald Trump has endorsed Hungary's prime minister, who is largely viewed as an autocrat. Never saw that coming, Mm -hmm. other than everybody. Just okay. Uh, In his bid for re-election. In a statement yesterday, the former president wrote that Viktor Orban has, quote, done a powerful job in stopping illegal immigration creating jobs and trade. He added that the prime minister is a strong leader and respected by all. The far right Orban has been open about his anti-democratic views, proudly touting his efforts to build a, quote, illiberal state. To do this, the nationalist leader has taken measures, including rewriting election laws to favor his party, changing school textbooks, removing press freedoms and overhauling Hungary's constitution. Orban, an early supporter of Trump, was granted an Oval Office meeting by then president, by the then president in 2019. 
his first since 1998. And this is not the first time the president, the former president, has endorsed a far right leader. Last October, Trump endorsed Brazilian president uh, Bolsonaro in his bid for re-election. On the same day, the Brazilian Senate recommended that he face criminal charges for his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, alleging he let COVID-19 rage freely in the country to test out herd immunity. Let's bring in staff writer at The Atlantic and Applebaum. She recently returned from a trip to Ukraine, which we'll get to that in a moment. That's a big story in itself. Yeah, and, and we're going to get to that. But first, and obviously no surprise here, Donald Trump uh, endorses Orban, who, of course, has crushed dissent, uh, any opposition in the media, uh, drove so many people out of, of Hungary that, that once opposed him. Uh, you put tracking devices on political opponents and mm. media, uh, free media. Uh, talk about uh, just for, for people who really don't understand how illiberal uh, this guy is. Talk about uh, talk about that and uh, your thoughts on Donald Trump's endorsement of him. I was at an event where Orban was the sort of star guest um, some months ago, and he was asked by an interviewer, uh, Mr. Orban, how is it that you've managed to remain in power so long? And he said, well, it helps if you don't have any opposition in the media. And I was sitting in the back with other journalists and everybody laughed. But the far right group, including Americans who were who were at that meeting, nodded in approval. So this is somebody who has systematically mm -hmm. sought to destroy private media, um, has uh, destroyed state media, which is important there, um, has destroyed the independence of the courts, has, as you said, changed the Constitution multiple times. Um, he now faces a real challenge. The Hungarian opposition has now united from the right to the left. Um, and has selected a single leader who is contesting him in elections uh, coming up in a few months. Um, and the fact that Donald Trump, uh, you know, former American president, uh, supposedly the leader of the, you know, the world's greatest democracy, who has used undemocratic methods to stay in power, is profoundly disturbing. And of course, it's being seen by other autocrats around the world um, as an endorsement of their behavior as well. So, Anne, in your new piece for The Atlantic entitled The U.S. is Naive About Russia, Ukraine Can't Afford to Be, you write in part this. The Ukrainians have no difficulty understanding that their conflict with Russia will involve violence because it already does. Americans and Europeans, meanwhile, desperately want a solution involving nothing more than diplomacy and sanctions. Seen from Kiev... The Western attitude toward Russia also looks incredibly naive. Although Putin varies his tactics, his longer-term goals have been very clear for a very long time. He might use disinformation one year, gas pipeline blackmail another, bribery or violence the next, but the end game is always the same. Reinforce his autocracy, undermine democracies, all democracies, and push Russian political influence as far as it will go. Americans need to stop being surprised by this list of goals and instead start writing a list of our own. 
Putin's analysis is not a paranoid, is a successful, prospering, Western-facing, democratic Ukraine would indeed pose a dire ideological threat to Russia, as well as to Belarus and to other autocracies in the region and around the world. It would prove to the inhabitants of other autocracies that they can escape the influence of their greedy brutal leaders. Losing Ukraine, by contrast, would reinforce dictators in Moscow, Minsk, and even Beijing. And Anne, I'll follow this up by saying this is a stark warning to the president of the United States to take this seriously. Um, is it not? We're having uh, trouble with with Anne uh, right now. Uh, let's uh, let's tr we'll, we'll uh, try Willie to get back to her in uh, in a minute. Try to fix uh, Wi-Fi. Uh, and, uh, but but for, but before we do that, obviously you 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 read Anne's piece, and it seems we really are as a country we are shocked every two two years. You know, in, in 14, we're shocked by the invasion of Ukraine. In 16, we're shocked by the disinformation. We're shocked by uh, what happened in Helsinki in 2018, the continued lies and the disinformation. We're shocked by, uh, you know, uh, blackmail uh, through gas pipelines. And now we're shocked by uh, him mounting, uh, mounting troops on the border. Of, of Ukraine. It's time to stop being shocked. And mm -hmm. as Anne uh, says, uh, it's time that uh, not only the president, but also uh, members of, uh, of Congress understand this guy is going to do whatever it takes to destabilize any democracy, not only in Eastern Europe, but across the world. Yeah. And Anne writes in the piece that this time the alarm bells are ringing louder in Washington than they are in Kiev and that they're ringing louder, perhaps, than they have in the past uh, in Washington. Even Jonathan Lemire, obviously, President Biden is going to talk face to face with President Putin next week in Geneva about this very question. Uh, and they're going to, uh, you know, is Putin going to call the bluff of the United States? Will, yeah. he, will he confront him? Yeah, it's U.S. officials are in uh, yeah, next week. Me. Yeah, the yeah. president is not a face-to-face -face yet, but right. Russia, the Kremlin has been advocating for another summit. We, of course, saw the two men sit together in Geneva last year. Uh, the president, Biden, is a bit of a bind here. There's only so much he can do. He certainly rallied European interests to NATO allies to support him. There's been no dissent there, uh, unlike on Chinese issues, but there's no no wavering here on, on Russia. Uh, and, but there's, and they've threatened significant economic sanctions if certainly... Putin and Russian troops were to step into into Ukraine. What's unclear, though, and, and we've been asking the White House about this uh, and truth. And it seems like the administration has not yet come to a conclusion as to what to do if simply the status quo remains. If Putin doesn't take that step, the aggressive move, the invasion, but rather just keeps the troops at the border, which, of course, the longer they're there, the more chance there could be something could happen, even accidentally to spark conflict. Uh, and the White House right now is weighing its options as to how they want to do that. There were some some hopeful signs uh, in some of the conversations between the two governments last week, but the that the phone call between Putin and Biden was relatively brief as these things go. It seems like no breakthrough was made, just simply each side reiterating their stances. So this is going to be a standoff that shows no signs of, of ending, and U.S. officials worry that these next month or two in particular could be, if Putin were to make a move, that's when he would do it. Mm. Yeah, well, you know, they can worry all they want. Uh, they need to be planning. They need to be planning aggressively. And I trust that they are. Uh, and uh, they hopefully are looking back to see what uh, the Carter administration did uh, with, of course, Dr. Brzezinski 
back in 1980 when the Soviets were surrounding Poland and about to go in. And they made it very clear that it would be against their best interest to go into Poland at that time. Uh, we're not hearing enough from this administration on what aggressive steps they're taking. There's, there, there's no reason to trust Vladimir Putin. Uh, he sees us as an enemy. We see him as a rival. Uh, but, but, but we, we've learned. We've, I mean, we've learned over the past 20 years uh, that there are no good intentions there. Uh, again, shocked in 2008 with the invasion of Georgia, shocked in 2014, so much for a reset, uh, with an invasion of Ukraine, shocked in 2016 that he tried to undermine American democracy, shocked for the next four years that he continued to undermine American democracy and tried every way he could to undermine American democracy and now shocked that he's putting troops on the border of Ukraine? No, no. It is time to stop being shocked. And it is time to move aggressively, not towards war, but toward defending our allies. And, you know, it may be lost uh, in, in all of the, the, the nonsense and the propaganda that's been coming out from Russia over the past five years and all those in the West who want to just sort of keep things as they are, maintain the status quo, uh, not disturb Vladimir Putin. But we made a commitment to the Ukrainian people. We had a very simple deal. And we said, if you give us your nuclear weapons, if you disarm unilaterally, we promise, we vow, as the United States of America, we and the rest of the international community will make sure that your borders are protected against invasion from Russia or anybody else. And guess what? We did nothing. We did absolutely nothing. They invaded in 2014, and we wouldn't even provide defensive weapons early on. We, we've got to be aggressive in our defense of our allies. And Ukraine, despite what you hear from Putin propagandists, propagandists across the world, and yes, even here in America, despite what you hear, we have to defend our democratic allies. That's in Poland. That's in Ukraine. That is across Eastern Europe. The Soviet Union lost the Cold War. They can get over it or they can pay even more consequences. It's that simple. And it's time for the Biden White House to start speaking more clearly and more aggressively and telling us how they're going to stop this invasion from happening. Okay. That's all. Still ahead on Morning Joe, an extensive look at the civil war inside Trump world as a bitter fight for power among those who were once allies spills out into public view. It involves some of the most notorious players on the far right. We have that new reporting, plus the rise and fall of a Silicon Valley star will take you through the guilty verdict for Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes and explain what she did. You're watching Morning Joe. We'll be right back. The International Rescue Committee works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Lebanon, displaced families are experiencing rough winter weather on top of war, hunger, and displacement. 
All of this has driven up food prices, destroyed infrastructure, and driven millions from their homes. Donations help the IRC provide families with resources like food, shelter, fuel, medicine, blankets, and cash assistance. Donate today by visiting rescue.org rebuild. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. 34 past the hour. Here's a look at some other news making headlines this morning. A federal jury yesterday found Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes guilty on four counts of wire fraud. More than two years after she was charged with misleading investigators with fraudulent claims about her blood testing technology. After a four month trial, the jury found Holmes guilty on three counts of wire fraud against Theranos investor investors and one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud. She was found not guilty on three counts of committing wire fraud against patients who had paid Theranos for blood test results. The jury was unable to reach a verdict on two other counts of wire fraud and one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud. Each count carries a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison. Holmes is expected to appeal the verdict. Joining us now, MSNBC legal analyst Danny Savalos and CNBC's Brian Sullivan. Good to have you both this morning. So, Brian, let me start with you. I, for 30 years, we've heard these uh, Silicon Valley stories where guys are just winging it uh, and, and, and they're just praised for, you know, just being BS artists who, who have Stanford degrees or dropped out. Uh, we, we heard about Steve Jobs, reality distortion field. He he saw he just he made things up and and tried to get them to that point. You, you've heard other stories in Silicon Valley, men doing the same thing for thirty years. Fake it till you make it uh, is the mantra out there. Has been, uh, but they convict a woman. She could go to jail for twenty years. Help me understand the difference between this and what men have been doing in Silicon Valley for thirty years. Well, it's a complicated case, and a jury found her guilty, not to make his point on all the counts, Joe, but I had the opportunity to interview Elizabeth Holmes. I interviewed Holmes uh, on Squawk Box and CNBC just hours before the first article came out questioning Theranos' business. The writer of that article, John Carreyrou, by the way, was widely attacked because Holmes was venerated. You mentioned Stanford dropout. She was. 30 years old, being touted as the next Steve Jobs, even sort of mirrored his outfit, always in the black turtleneck as well. She was able to get this company, Joe, to a $10 billion internal market cap. It was never traded publicly. She convinced some of the smartest investors in the world to give her money. And by the way, I'm going to give you a couple names you guys might recognize. Henry Kissinger, Sam Nunn, Bill Frist, and George Schultz. Just four members of the Theranos board of directors at the time this was all going on. Part of her strategy, according to all the books, the podcasts, the novels, interviews, trial, whatever, was to make sure she was surrounded by people that maybe had the gravitas as a newcomer 
She did not. In fact, George Shultz's grandson, Joe, was one of the primary whistleblowers to help Holmes get convicted or at least charged at the time. Tyler Schultz, who was an early Theranos employee, it caused a rift between him and his grandfather, George. Yes, Sully, you mentioned John Carreyrou, who's reporting for the journal, started all this, his book, Bad Blood. There's a podcast called The Dropout, which is also excellent, which gets to all this deception. Um, But the product itself really was the center of the fraud, right? She went out and raised all this money saying, I've got this machine that can quickly and easily and safely diagnose just about anything with a pick of a print and and, and of a a pin and to take your blood and to diagnose you with whatever you might have in the future, what you have now. So how did she get away with it for so long until these articles started coming out? Yeah. And by the way, the dropout, amazing by my friend, Rebecca Jarvis of ABC. Shout out to her. She did a great job on that. Um, Okay, how she did that. That's a good question. Um, Here's how it worked. Now, you're supposed to just take a small jab of your finger. Her machine would be able to analyze uh, up to 100 different things that you might get from a bigger vial of blood versus just one drop. It did not work. However, what was alleged in all of this stuff, Willie, you might know about as well, was that one point they actually, number one, faked an office. When they brought investors in, they would have like a fake lab that they had created. They also bought a machine that worked, a Siemens machine, like the normal ones that a hospital would use, had it behind the scenes, would put the blood on their machine, actually run the results on the real machine in the back where nobody could see it, then come out with the results and say, look, they worked. Unfortunately, here's the scary part. When they would use their machine, and it did produce some results, the results would often be so wrong. You could have cancer or not have cancer right. and be told you did or did not. These were life and death things. By the way, the CEO of Safeway at the time was drawn in. Really smart, powerful people were sucked into the Theranos web and ended up losing billions of dollars. Luckily, it appears nobody lost their life off these bad results. Yeah, uh, Elizabeth Holmes basically charmed her way to a $10 billion market cap, but there was nothing behind the curtain in the end. So, Danny, as you look at these charges, uh, convicted on four counts, four others found not guilty. What do you make of the way it shook out for her? This was a huge win for both sides. And let me explain. Uh, when it comes to the defense, I mean, who honestly thought that she would get acquitted on any counts? Who thought that she would get deadlocked juries or jurors on any of these counts? For that reason, this is a win for the defense, especially when Holmes took the stand, and I'm going to use a legal term here, la di da da her way through what apparently was perjury. Uh, it's a miracle that she got acquitted on anything. Meanwhile, for the government, realistically, she's looking at, and I'm giving a very low guidelines estimate here, at least 10 years in prison. And even that acquitted conduct can be considered by the judge in sentencing. So this is a win for the government as well. She's going to go to prison and for a significant period of time. All right. Uh, Danny Savalos and Brian Sullivan, thank you very much for your insight this morning. And coming up for decades, pop culture has often made a concerted effort to reclaim forgotten or maligned women and portray them in a glamorous light. But do we lose something when history is reframed as an Instagram story? That conversation is straight ahead on Morning Gel.
The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations. And they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. Divorced. Beheaded. Beheaded. Died. Died. Divorced. Beheaded. Survived. from the new Broadway musical Six, where according to its website, the Six Wives of Henry VIII take to the mic to remix 500 years of historical heartbreak into an exuberant celebration of 21st century girl power. But our next guest argues, quote, in seeking to turn historical women into yassified contemporary heroines, pop culture creators are narrowing what female success can look like. Joining us now, New York, uh, New York Times theater critic and features writer Alexis Solosky. Her latest piece is entitled Catherine Was Great, but was she a girl boss? It's a good question. Also with us for this conversation, MSNBC political analyst Elise Jordan. Thank you both for being with us. Alexis, thank you so much. Uh, Catherine, of course, uh, in, in the great uh, doesn't come across quite the same way uh, she does when you read about her in history. Is, as uh, the headline says, uh, she's been yassified, as have all of these other uh, characters. Uh, what, what is gained and what is lost by this Instagramming of these, uh, these historic figures? I think these shows are great. I think they're so fun. I watch them and I wonder how I can get a dress like that. Um, I think that they're very savvy. I think that they're very smart, but I think that when we have a culture that is often depicting women as a lot younger than they were when they accomplished what they accomplished as a lot sexier than they probably were, if you look at the historical record, as more empowered in the way that we would understand it now than they actually would have been in the circumstances of their times, that creates something of a problem. To me, it just seems exhausting to have to change the world, but to also have to be hot. Uh, it would be nice if maybe you could pick well, one it, or the it, other. Right. <laughs> you know, it really is. It, it is the Instagramification. Well 
of popular culture and and of and of history uh, as well. And again, as you say, uh, it, it sets up unrealistic expectations. Uh, you're, so you you want uh, your your daughter to not only uh, study hard, uh, go to a good school, but also uh, make sure that uh, she gets the blush applied just right. Well, yeah, and look amazing in a crop top because otherwise, what what is your worth? <laughs> 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 oh my god. And I, I really, just... like I really I really do like all of these shows. I'm not saying don't go see six. Six is a lot of fun, but I also wouldn't confuse six with history. I mean, that was my experience sitting in the theater seeing it the first time in 2020, just before the shutdown, was wow, the Spice Girls really read. Um, which is yeah, which is great and it's fun, but um it's not it's not the version of feminism that I practice or that I necessarily want to see put out into the world where empowerment and sexuality are always in lockstep. Understood completely. And Alexis, in your piece, you write in part real life, even the real lives of great women is mostly boring. Would you watch three seasons of a show in which Emily Dickinson sits alone at her desk, scratching out a verse with a pencil? But there are telling emphases in these shows and equally telling excisions. These, this new breed of heroine is ambitious and sex positive with impeccably modern politics. Rather than understanding these women as products of their time, we make them creatures of ours. If creators, even creators with explicitly feminist aims, believe that audiences won't pay attention to female protagonists absent of youth and beauty, they will likely frame empowerment Narrowly. Elise Jordan, what do you think of that? And go ahead and take the next question to Alexis. Well, Alexis, I'm just wondering your take on damned if you do, damned if you don't. Is it better to have these stories start to be told instead of the women being behind the scenes and forgotten, perhaps because their storylines aren't as, quote, sexy as what today's Instagram culture demands? Or should we just consider this a start of the process to exploring the lives of women in history that were rich in ways that, from our modern conception, we can't imagine and powerful in the same ways, too? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right on. And I think that's exactly what this movement is. It's a corrective because when you had literally thousands of years where we didn't really think that women's stories were worth telling, then you're going to say, okay, what is the sexiest, most exciting way that I can tell these stories that get the most people excited. You know, I think often of this collection of books that many people will know, Rebel Girls, which is, okay, here are women who defy history. I have every single one of them, you know, and I read them to my young kids. And they're great, and I'm glad for this moment. But I also think that we lose something when we sex things up too much, and it's often what we lose on the other side is an understanding of, okay, what were these women's lives actually like? And what was the real kind of systemic bias and oppression that they faced? And I understand that because um, you know what's not sexy? Systemic bias and oppression. Uh, that's no one's idea of a good time. But without understanding that, then it just becomes a little like a Halloween costume rather than a real understanding of, okay, what were these women's lives and what did they really achieve? 
Alexis Olaski of The New York Times, thank you so much. Come back. We really appreciate it as we uh, see what other shows are out there and try and navigate COVID through this pandemic. Still ahead, as we prepare to mark one year since the Capitol insurrection, we have new reporting on how extremism has shifted since the January 6th attack, plus an update on the traffic nightmare on I-95 in Northern Virginia, where winter weather has stranded drivers for more than 15 hours overnight. And we're hearing from other friends uh, that are stuck out there. It is just an absolute nightmare uh, and really no relief in sight right now for people who've been stuck in their cars for 15 hours. We'll be right back. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.